Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I'm joined by Keisha Thomas, a registered nutritionist and Pilates instructor who works to help individuals build a positive relationship with both body and food. Keisha joins us today to discuss her work as a nutritional therapist in eating disorders, as well as discussing black body image and the view of eating disorders in the black community. Hello, Keisha. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Well, thanks. And how are you? Yeah, and good, thank you. It's Friday, it's the weekend. I feel like I'm finally relaxing. It's really nice. <laughs> no, it's definitely a good feel. I do love a Friday. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, best day of the week. I was saying to one of my colleagues yesterday, actually, like the Tuesday used to be the day that I didn't like the most because it was like not close to last weekend, but also you're just not near next weekend. But now Thursday is. Thursday is such like a dead day because you're like so tired, but there's still another day to go. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, I think I love a Wednesday. Like you kind of feel like, oh, look, we're halfway through. And then you kind of get to Thursday. You're like, okay, let's get going to Friday. Not that we're trying to wish the week away, by no, the way. No, exactly. Got to live in the moment. Um, these are the daily struggles. <laughs> um, talking of work, um, I'm really interested to hear from what you do kind of in your work. So you mentioned to me that you're a nutritional therapist. Um, and I wondered for people listening, if you could kind of explain what that is, I guess, specifically in the realm of eating disorders and kind of what your day to day working looks like. Sure. Yeah. So registered nutritional therapist um, based here in, in the UK, um, just in case you've got listeners overseas. Um, so in terms of eating disorder recovery, what that looks like, it's I have to say, like people have this idea soon as you tell them you're a nutritionist you're a nutritional therapist they think oh then you must do x y and z and it's like no that's not what I do so it is very different in a way for easy recovery because a lot of what my work is is normalizing food so mm-hmm. really just helping a person have a better relationship with food with their body there's a lot of sort of dispelling myths around what diet culture um teaches us you know we've also even in my training and my teaching was very much trained in a very diet culture centric way so a lot of my work is really that just being like hey guess what it's normal to eat all different types of food and we you know and also look at that part of like how guilt and shame and all these things and not being able to trust body cues so like where people just are so disconnected from their hunger Mm -hmm. cues and their fullness cues and feeling shame around certain um, body cues as well particularly around food so there's a lot of that in in the work that I do so it's it's a lot of um empowering really clients to get to know their bodies and to really own how they really feel about food meaning if you like having ice cream and you really enjoy those foods and think enjoying that without the thought sort of like guilt of like oh and I like eating because we've sort of been trained to sort of um feel guilty around certain foods it's just like no that's that's very normal that we'd eat all different types of food so yeah in a in a very big nutshell that's pretty much what (laughs) I do (laughs) I think that sounds really interesting and I think one thing that you mentioned there that I think is so important is those hunger and fullness cues that I think just become so dysregulated because especially in I think eating disorders you become so reliant on that internal voice or however you see your eating disorder on kind of that telling you when you should eat when you shouldn't eat and stuff like that but I guess the question that's come to my mind and there might not be like a definitive answer for this what's the difference between your work as a nutritional therapist and a dietitian? it depends it is that so from a 
a legal standpoint, dietitian is a protected term. So okay. they have done a standardized type of training, which is um, which means that they are the only so you can only be called a dietitian if you've done a specific course that is um, approved uh, by the BDA, the British Dietetics Association. Um, whereas nutritional therapy, <laughs> sort of mouthful, whereas <laughs> nutritional therapy <laughs> and nutritionists, these aren't protected terms, which is right. why I have to go through the extra step of making sure that I'm registered to a registered body to show that I am adhering to certain standards. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the main difference in terms of how we all work. That can be that can just be different depending on who the person is. So I couldn't even definitely say how all dietitians work versus all nutritional therapists, because I definitely um, have interacted with all types of, you know, people from different sort of backgrounds within the food healing space. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone just does just work differently. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the broader sort of context, but then within the little nuances, how we all work can be similar, can be different, depends on a person's sort of approach to food. Yeah. And I mean, this is just a completely different point and I'm not going to go on about it because I'll go off topic, but I am also a nutritionist, uh, you know, by, by trade, I don't actually work in nutrition, but I am kind of a registered associate nutritionist, but it Mm -hmm. annoys me that it's not a protected title because then, but you know, then you've got people online talking about loads of different random nutrition things that oh they're qualified because they did a three-day course online but now they can give you that information whereas people like yourself and I have done courses that you know mine was a year long um with the dissertation and everything involved and you kind of think hmm but there's no way for the random you know somebody on the street if you don't know that there's certain types like there's different types of nutrition courses and how would you know who to get the information from well exactly and I think that's the importance of if anyone out there is looking for someone to help them on their journey is to ask those questions about like what that person's training might have been um and how they approach their their work as well because like I say even within the nutrition the registered nutritional therapy world there's a, there can be people out there who even work within the ED recovery space that sometimes don't say the most helpful things. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really important that people take that time to, to find somebody who has one, got the appropriate training and is, well, feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. I think something else that's really important is just, you know, taking that time, like you said, to find the right person for you, because just because someone's got a qualification doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to fit with you nicely. And, you know, I know personally, I've not had nutritional therapy, but I've had therapy. um, And I went through a lot of different counselors and therapists and kind of was like, I'm just not gelling with them. And that's okay. Like, you're not going to gel with everyone in life. So why would you? the first person you maybe find yeah exactly it is important that you do take that yeah like you say take that time and just um yeah give yourself that space and also it's it's given it's it's given that power back to that person again and saying that I get to choose and you do get Mm. to choose yeah absolutely um and in, in terms of the the work that you do I think when we kind of had a little chat before you were talking a bit about trauma um and I kind of wanted to understand your perspective from that um I think a lot of people especially in eating disorders an eating disorder might be triggered by a traumatic event and I think the definite definition of that is completely dependent on the person and something that one person thinks is traumatic might not be for another um but I guess my question is, do you think we have to relive that in order to recover? Absolutely not. So I think um, one of the one of the things that I'm always um, reflecting back to my clients, because sometimes with, so for example, with a traumatic event, and I'll, I'll actually let me say that now. So when it comes to what is traumatic, this is down to what a person feels was um, something that happened uh, too fast, too soon, where there wasn't enough support, or they felt unseen or unheard, right? So that's enough. If any time a person felt safe and felt like things are out of their control, that's enough to say that that's a traumatic event. And that is always going to be down to how that person feels about that lived experience mm-hmm. or how, how they experience that experience. What's important for people to remember is that not necessarily everybody remembers. So sometimes these things have happened before a person even knew how to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about things like, you know, neglect or, or other types of trauma that rather a lot of these things may have happened before a person even had the words to put to it. So these things are then stored. Trauma lives in the body. It's imprinted in the nervous system. I felt unsafe. 
my nervous system has an imprint or feeling of time they say where they could be reminded of times when they felt unsafe and then that gets relived through the body in itself they don't have to be able to remember and even if they do remember they don't have to go through the specific um, events of their trauma so it's not necessary that a person has to relive the trauma or talk about the trauma unless they want to mm. I think it's important for people to know that you don't have to do that in order to heal from trauma that can be done just working with the somatics the feelings and sensations that come up through the body because that is where the trauma is that's where it lives within the nervous system so the nervous system becomes dysregulated where a person experiences lots of um, hyper arousal so feelings of up so that's like the anxiety the fight flight or they might experience a lot of um, down, so hypoarousal, where they experience a lot of uh, freezing and fawning and, and pleasing others um, as a result of trying to keep themselves safe. And that's what we can work with without even knowing the reason behind that. Right. OK, that's really interesting. And it, it sounds so much... I can understand so much why that would link to eating disorders, because it just it is kind of that, you know, I feel like eating disorders are almost that fight or flight, that panic of... I don't know what to do so I'm going to turn to food or equally I mean not even necessarily just the food just all the emotions around it and I've heard a lot of people when they talk about their eating disorder they've got similar characteristics of you know like you said the people pleasing kind of not doing things for themselves doing it for everybody else in order to to stay safe so kind of when you're working with somebody is it I guess you do work around the food, like you said, with the hunger and the fullness and stuff, but is it also looking at those sorts of behaviors and how to combat the trauma without maybe reliving the trauma? Yeah, exactly. So it's looking at the, when anything specific happens with a food behavior, exercise behavior, or any other sort of behavior that a person's struggling with in that moment in time, understanding that that is a coping mechanism and that that is something that they're doing as a protective factor and therefore what is it that they needed from that particular mm -hmm. food or that behavior or that incident in that time and so it's not necessarily about um com combating it as such yes but it's more saying hey what would it be like if we looked for some other ways that you can regulate your nervous system without reaching for these different behaviors so noticing that this is a this is a coping mechanism these are coping mechanisms that you have um, employed because everything within you so all the internal resources that you you had have all been used up and you've got no more internal resources so now you're reaching for this external stuff and saying that's absolutely fine because that's what's brought you here today but let's try and find some other things in your toolbox so that these things these other behaviors don't feel like they're so necessary anymore and is there particular things that a lot of people sort of turn to during their recovery that you might suggest people try? Yeah, I think the, the first the first thing is being is um, cultivating that sense of safety, because a lot of times a person is trying to, uh, like I said, regulate a dysregulated nervous system. And actually just even a person saying, you know, I think I, I put it once up on my Instagram. So I recognize there was some posts I was putting out there talking about the importance of connecting to body. And I thought, well, hold on, let me take a step back, because for some people connecting to body doesn't feel safe. Mm. so the first thing is like trying to open up some space that a person can sit with themselves and and be in their body and what do you need beside you to do that so might that be listening to a piece of music that you really really love might that be being in nature does that mean that you want to co-regulate your nervous system with a really chilled out pet that you've got <laughs> and that might help is that talking to a friend is that grounding with a weighted blanket or swaddling yourself in your duvet like what helps you feel um like you can not necessarily it's not about pushing away these feelings what helps you feel like you can tolerate this difficult turmoil this is the way I like mm. to describe it going on within you what helps you sit with that yeah and I'm until so pardon until it passes yeah because <laughs> it does yeah right? <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think that's such an important thing to say that those feelings can feel really overwhelming but they don't last forever and they do pass but I'm also really glad that you mentioned about sort of kind of f being able to do something before you get to a place where you're comfortable in your body because I know when I was doing therapy um I can't think what it was called a body scan that's it my therapist mm. said to me can you go and do a body scan and you know she she asked me to do it so I went and did it 
and it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life because it was asking me to to feel every part of my body and at that point in my recovery all I was trying to do was to forget about how it felt because it felt so uncomfortable to be in so I think absolutely it's so important that we take that step to approach and kind of recognize where we're at with our body yeah and actually yeah and that sort of that looking inside so that body body scan is into receptive awareness maybe not having to focus on so much what's going on inside in that moment so what might have been more helpful is is things like noticing what the air feels like on your face and suddenly you're like on my face like the air like what sounds can you hear outside of you out sounds and then suddenly the more you listen the more sounds mm-hmm. you hear so things like that what might feel more safer than going inside and feeling the feelings because yeah like you said yeah. that's the last thing that's the whole that these were the coping mechanisms came in want to disconnect from body not get all in it right yeah. now yeah absolutely and it's funny you should say that as well because that's actually my favorite grounding technique you know the five senses one ah, um yes. I absolutely love that because it's got nothing to do with kind of how I mean there is one like about feeling but that's more touch um so I I love that I think that's one of the most fantastic ones um so thank you for that I really really want to start talking about the black community and eating disorders because I think it is a topic that is not discussed enough um but also the reason I think I'm so excited to talk to you about it is because most of the topics that we talk about on this podcast I kind of either have experience with or can kind of relate to um but this is something that I can't I sort of can't relate to um, but I'm so interested to understand the differences so I guess the first thing that I wanted to talk about which kind of comes to my mind is that I guess um, in the western culture we've sort of got this kind of thin ideal um, that has been developed and I wondered kind of what that's like in the black community is that the same has it maybe been altered by the western ideal or is it completely different yeah it's it's an interesting um question and it's a really important thing it's a really important um point to to talk on actually so thanks for asking that question so i would say what we're typically dealing with so if i just make it a bit uk centric for the minute Mm -hmm. um in that a black so first of all everybody's difference we have to also bear in mind that every black body's experience every black person's experience is going to be different um but what we get so much here is this assumption that everybody is aiming for the thin ideal whereas yeah like you said in the black community in black communities it's not necessarily that thin is the thing that is quote-unquote ideal what's often praised is the is the curves the hips the chest Mm. the the this or that What's also often praised is how straight a person's hair might naturally be, how 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 shapely a person's nose may be, the color mm-hmm. of their skin, the shade of their skin. So these are the things that come into sort of when we think about body image and within the black community. But what we're often dealing with, so here, in, if I use the UK as an example, and if anyone's listening from outside the UK, you can apply it to any context actually. But if you think about that's black people within black spaces. Now, when you take a black person out of a black space and put them into a predominantly white space where they are now the minority, now we have this um, a cultural process that has to go on where a person is now trying to fit in with that group. So mm-hmm. this is where the thin ideal might become internalized of like, well, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? So there, there's this little bit of a push that can be a little bit of a push pull between this is what my black community values in terms of bodies but when I'm outside of my black community and I'm within white spaces, predominantly white spaces, this is what they feel are ideal. Where am I? <laughs> right. Mm. So this person is dealing with this inner sort of push and pull. And it's something that I can relate to in terms of hair texture. So one of the things that I went through was a whole process where I had my hair chemically uh, straightened when I was about 11 years old. And then wow. when I was 24, yeah, so when I was 24, I was like, I'm going to go natural again. But I didn't even think to myself that in all of my adult years, I'd never had natural hair. And then when I did have natural hair, my mum did it for me. So I went natural again and I was natural for and I built up a massive Facebook group, got everyone in oh, all my black family friends come in. Let's all go natural together. Four years later, I was like, I don't want to have natural hair anymore. So then I had to do this like weird and awkward process of being like, 
sorry, whole black community, I'm not going to be natural anymore. But now I also feel weird about going back to relaxed hair or going back to straighter hair. So there's this inner thing of like, I'm letting them down. Mm. I don't, and it's this thing where you just don't know, you're like, who am I in this? And it's yeah. about, that's what the big part of the healing process is for a person with, you know, black body image and, and thinking about what is, what are your values? What do you want? What's right for your body um, in terms of like what feels right or what you value mm. in yourself? It sounds like, especially moving from a black community to a black community to a white community, your identity is just kind of, who am I? Like, wh- where do I fit? How do I want to fit? And also what you, with what you were saying about your hair, even that, mm-hmm. it was almost like you built up this identity of I'm natural. Yeah. You know, we can all be natural together, but then actually you changed your mind, which we're human, we're allowed to change our mind. And then you didn't want to, but it almost, your identity is kind of attached to those things. Oh, massively. Cause you felt like you were letting you, it's this feeling of like when I quote unquote move away from being my, having my natural hair, it felt like I was moving away from being my natural, my quote unquote natural self. And it's mm-hmm. just like, well, hold on everybody else gets to do whatever they want with their hair. Why is it so different? So no, no one, no one bats an eye when someone goes from brunette to blonde. No one talks no. about you moving away from your brunette culture. Like it's not, <laughs> so, there's just so <laughs> much in it, right? There's just so much in it. And that's the same with bodies. So like I say, a black body within black community versus black body outside of black community, whole different sort of um, internal experience there. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really confusing I think that you know I personally struggled with my identity and knowing who I was and I I mean I was kind of the same I guess in that my whole school life I straightened my hair and I want you know well curly hair was for nerds now I mean my hair looks an absolute mess today because I just got back from the gym but now I love my curly hair and I love the fact that it's like but again that's really strange you said that because it is my identity I see Mm -hmm. my big hair as my identity and I'm five foot one so when you look at me like half of me is hair my hair's down to my bum so it's big but Mm -hmm. I you know I always dread going to the hairdressers because I'm like I'm not going to be Hannah with the big big curly hair and that saying that out loud sounds so silly, but it's so true, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think it's silly. I don't think it's silly at all. I think as long as you're, I think at the end of it, it's like the fact that you're doing what you hair, what you hair, what you want with your hair. <laughs> <laughs> just, just hair, hair, hair. So hair like 25 times in two minutes. Um, but, you know, it's your choice. And it's as mm. long as, you know, when we're making these decisions about how we wear our hair and, and how we dress, that we're doing it because this is what we want in that moment yes. in time. And of course our mind can change, but it's like, I'm doing this for me. I'm not doing this for acceptance. Mm-hmm. Full stop actually. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess talking about sort of the black community and body image, how do you think the black community sees eating disorders? Do you know, I think the sad thing is, is a lot of the time we don't. I think it's not that how do we see, I think, I think even within the black community, there's a belief that black people don't get eating disorders. Um, and, you know, it's, I always say um, that, you know, we struggle generally with, in, in, you know, everyone struggles, when I say everyone, quote unquote, everyone struggles with talking about mental health issues, but in the black community, it's very taboo um, and, and not often spoken about. Um, and so when it comes to things like eating disorders, it's this idea that this isn't a, also something that affects black people, probably because of what the way we have, what we have been shown. Um, you know, we don't get to see many examples of how eating disorders do affect all people, all races and, and you know, classes and sizes and, you know, all the rest of it. And so within the black community, I don't think eating disorders even get seen, unfortunately, um, in the same way that mental health is often sort of, well, I think mental health is brushed under the carpet, but I think that eating disorders, like I say, is that there's a belief that we don't suffer from eating disorders. Why do you think that belief is? Do you think it's sort of just, it's not a thing or is, is it like there's shame around mental health? I think it's a shame around mental health, but I think also because of the way that eating disorders can um, present. So I think if we think about like what eating disorders we tend to typically hear about. So for those of us who work within ED recovery and for those who also have suffered from eating disorders or know people with eating disorders, we'll have a bit more of an understanding about all the different eating disorders that are out there. 
right? But if we're talking about the general Joe public who just hear eating disorders, if I tell somebody what I do as a profession, they will only ever name anorexia. They don't think about all the other eating disorders that exist. And so what I think happens a lot within the black community where um, the limited studies that are out there so first of all, all eating disorders, right? Any black, a black person can suffer from any of the eating disorders, but what happens within the black community and with black people, what has been shown so far in the research is that we're more likely to suffer from binge eating and bulimia. And because these eating disorders in general aren't really spoken about, I think even more so binge eating disorder, mm-hmm. they can be mistaken or even a person experiencing doesn't even realize that that's what they're going through. They see themselves as being, you know, quote unquote out of control or I'm just emotionally eating or they're restricting. And then there's a binge eating period and they're not realizing that is part of them trying to deal with something or other a coping mechanism. It, I mean, um, it, and this is a question that I had for you because, so I'm not going to say what I think about this because I'm I'm going to try and keep a straight face, although I don't think I'll be able to. I've kind of given away what I think about it now. So I read something, I think it was a few weeks ago now, that said that eating disorders don't exist or didn't exist in black communities. It's just like the Western influence that have caused eating disorders to exist in black communities. I mean, I mean, I, I would love to even know where that where that even came from. Because either way, it's 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 problematic. If it came from a black person, problematic. If it came from a non-black person, problematic, right? But um, it's that's ridiculous because like it's, it's well, it's what absolutely. We have to, well, I mean, <laughs> and the, yeah, we can all just agree that it's definitely untrue, <laughs> yeah. right? But it's ridiculous, and that again, it, it's given this idea that. You know, if yes, we can we can we can acknowledge that racism and oppression does play a part in how a person um, may come about to want to manage these things with eating disorders, but that isn't all of it. You know, we'll we have to remember that also we're talking about childhood traumas that happen, we're talking about sexual abuse, we're talking about you know, all the different reasons why a person may be traumatized um beyond racism and, and, and oppression so um and also yeah it, it kind of gives this idea again of like that people are so different that we couldn't possibly have suffered from this if, if it wasn't for x y and z yeah I think what it does is I think maybe because of <clears throat> I guess the thin ideal in western culture it it just shouts anorexia is the only eating disorder and it it just disregards everything else and it disregards all of the research that shows you know um unfortunately eating disorders are completely multifactorial and it's not just one thing that triggers an eating disorder you know we did a podcast the one that was out last week with um the head professor from edgy and he's looking into genetics and metabolism and kind of hormones and your yeah. environment and everything and I mean so it's much. it's great that they're doing the research but also it's like a complete minefield of how are we ever going to understand and you know I really pray that one day we will be able mm. to um but I think saying comments like that and like you said I, I honestly can't remember where it came from but wherever it came from it's problematic and then also if you are somebody who's in the black community and you see something like that I feel like you just think my eating disorders it's not relevant it's you know it's, yeah. it's not as important as somebody else I don't know I, I think it was such a horrific thing to see it's horrible and like you know and that's something that anyone with an eating disorder already thinks right yeah because everyone who who's you know nothing is always but let's say most people who suffer from an eating disorder have this belief that their eating disorder is so different and that none will ever understand so to see something like that it's just like oh you see proof it's so different or is it if, am I even sick you know that's yeah. the other common thought that a person might have so yeah really really not helpful and like you said there are just so many things that we do understand about eating disorders but so many things that we don't understand and that we are now only understanding sort of the genetic component of things and the hormonal factors and there's some and I did read something quite interesting about um something going on with metabolic um process there as well so just so many things that we just don't know and we're just we just need to look at what's happening in the here and now what's that you know pe- wonderful people like edgy are doing that fantastic research for us 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it it's obviously you know it could be possible that because of the different communities and the different cultures that there could be different influences and that could be why maybe that there's a higher prevalence of binge eating disorder in black communities that you know that could be a valid thing but that still doesn't it still doesn't say that they're a western influence at all no, it doesn't. And I think, and I wonder how much that, that actual quote had taken something out of context. Cause like what I mentioned before about that, the stress. So what we talk about the acculturated stress, so the stress of somebody having to integrate into a culture that is not their own can bring about coping mechanisms such as eating disorder behaviors. But that isn't to say that's the only reason why eating disorders present in the black community. That is one of many reasons as to why, and it's usually multifactorial. Like we, yeah, like we said. Yeah. And I suppose kind of going back to what we said at the start, that could be the traumatic event that occurred that then led to the eating disorder. So but I think it's almost like a chicken and an egg situation. Yeah. And it's I think that that's the greatest difficulty with an eating disorder is that you can't you can't go back to when it started because you can't put your finger on that. And I don't think you need to, like we said, but I think that is what makes it difficult. I suppose another question would be is how do you think that you change the cultural view on eating disorders? Because I think in order for people to, you know, in order for eating disorders to maybe become more accepted, you need to have more people speaking up about their experiences and sharing what they've been through. But often when it's the start, that takes a very brave person to do that. So kind of what what shifts do you think need to happen? I think I think the I don't think the owners should be on the eating disorder sufferers, if I'm honest, because I think, like you said, that's a very vulnerable thing to have to do publicly. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm all up for people sharing their story, but no one should feel that like they have to anything. Right. Like you can go for your whole recovery without without social media or anybody knowing. Um so I think it's more on the, it's more for those of us who have been working in recovery to, to be talking about it more. And when I say those of us, I mean, everybody needs to do it. So it can't just be, um, you know, black clinicians and black nutritionists. It needs to be also people like yourself, you know, other people who have maybe bigger platforms and reach yeah a wider reach that also needs to be amplifying voices of you know of, of people of color black women black men and all the rest of it so I think it is just about representation and I think what we um what we often have here one thing that I try to role model in the work that I do is that we can be in a more collaborative space I'm always collaborating with other nutritionists and other dietitians and other people who do the same thing that I do but I want to hear your perspective on this and I think we could do that a little bit more um having these cross communications having these difficult conversations as well um publicly so that people could see that this is a thing um and that we are all it's, it's on all of us um, when I say all of us all of us within the recovery community to, to to speak on it or to do something about it so yeah like I say when I say everyone speak on it it's not that everyone has to go out and share their story but you know even sharing a blog post or even mm-hmm. just sharing a conversation or trying to yourself if you're noticing that you're following a certain if you look for your follow uh, for the people who you follow on social media or who, or who you're getting your ED recovery information from looking yourself at how diverse that is as well so just you know just making sure that in your inter- even in your little world that things look nice and diverse and then hopefully in the wider world that will echo as well because at the moment we are just seeing um you know pre- it's getting better it has gotten better over these last couple of years but I feel like that needs to be done even more so um the other thing is there's a massive gap in the research you know we we don't have many um studies out there that talk about eating disorders within black community within black people um and not the studies that are out there are based in the us which is this idea we have to remember you know as black people we're not monolithic and a black person here in the uk would have had quite, I believe, quite a different experience to a black person in the US um, and black person in other, so do you know what I mean? It's like at the moment, all the black studies that we do have, which are limited, they're mostly coming out of the USA, which is great that we have that. I'm so thankful for that, but like we need, we need a wider representation. 
And then for the clinicians, it's about people who are working in this ED recovery space, feeling comfortable to have difficult conversations about race. Like Mm. how does a person, whether you're black or white or other, like how do you feel about sitting across from black, black person and asking them what feels um, important to them about their race or what racial experiences that, or what experience they have had that they believe has been as a result of their race, like how comfortable the people feel about having those conversations um, with a black person sat in front of them. Cause otherwise it's sort of that um, elephant in the room is like, mm-hmm. you know, you're black, <laughs> you know, I'm black. <laughs> Why are we not talking about it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, Cause it means something. So yeah, it's important that people start to, if it's not doing their own training or referring out, but being able to have those difficult conversations, what might feel like uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think sometimes there can be such a fear of saying the wrong thing that people end up saying nothing at all. But it's like you've said, it sits there like an elephant in the room. And I think, you know, the more conversations you have, the more you then learn. And I think, you know, especially as a clinician or somebody that is, you know, working in eating disorder recovery, I think it's so valuable, especially, you know, if you're not from the black community to understand, you know, understand those social pressures or understand the difficulties of, you know, if they're going to go home and then they're going to have to say to their parents that they've been diagnosed with an eating disorder, what does that actually mean? You know, family support or support from loved ones can be a massive part of recovery. But if they're going home and they don't have that because of one reason or another, it's finding those reasons that then you can provide that extra support because every client's going to be different. But I think, you know, if you're looking specifically at the community they come from, that could then be an extra hurdle for somebody to then get through. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, like we discussed and that difficulty and actually eating, eating disorders being seen, mental health being seen outside of the therapy, outside of that therapeutic space of what, yeah, like you said, what is it like when that person goes home? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you think, you know, I mean, this is a really broad question because I'm guess it's going to be different for everybody. But do you think it would be a struggle for somebody to go home and say to their family that they'd got a mental health condition? You know, I mean, that's a really broad thing and I'm sure it's going to be different, but mm. uh, different for everybody. But do you think it would be difficult? I mean, I think, yeah, potentially, but I think... Um... It, yeah, it depends on how that person's family is. I think if I, t- if I speak about what I could imagine from what I know about the black community is that we don't tend to reach outside of our family homes for help. Okay. So even the going to therapy is seen as a quote unquote white thing right mm-hmm. it's, it's getting more normalized now but like you know this is something that generally as black people it's like we don't want well it's we don't want people to see that we're struggling so no, you're not going to, you know, so the fact that a person would be going somewhere else and seeking therapy, perhaps from a, perhaps even from a white person, is kind of like, what the hell, right? So yeah, I could imagine many a difficult conversation potentially around that. So yeah, nothing is always, and I think that we definitely are seeing a big shift in the way people are talking about therapy now. And I hope that is mean that that is changing. But um, from what I know of that community and what I could, yeah, what I've definitely heard is that it can be quite difficult to go outside to tell your family that you're quote unquote chatting their business that's how we'd say talking Mm. our business outside of the home um do you think that's why there's not so much research do you think people don't go and get diagnosed as frequently because of that worry therefore there's not enough people or not as many people to participate in the research, which means we don't get the results. Actually, just you've asked a really good question. So as I was talking before, I was like, there was something else I wanted to say and I couldn't remember what it was. (laughs) And you just reminded me in that it's the, not so much that people don't go out and get the diagnosis. Yes, maybe that, because there could be a fear of when I go into the doctor's office, they're going to ask me about, they're going to be making comments on my weight, um, Mm. which we know that BMI isn't really geared for, well, many bodies, but at least for black bodies as well, because we tend to run heavier. Um, and so, okay. so there's this element of the actual diagnostic criteria is stacked against us. And the questions that get asked means that a lot of the time, eating disorders aren't being picked up, even when a person makes it into the doctor's office. 
So, you know, the way that questions are being asked or the expectations or the, or the biases that a person or, or, you know, that internal bias, that, um, is that about what I'm saying? Internal bias that somebody might already, I don't think that's the right word, that a person may already have in like saying like, I don't believe that black people get eating disorders. Yeah, right? no, that's, that's internal bias. Is yeah, it the, yeah. 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 <laughs> I've and then, that's, then I just said it three times. Like, it still sounds wrong. <laughs> it's uh, right now. <laughs> it's gonna have to do. Um, so even with that, it makes a person when that black person sitting in front of them already believe that anything I'm gonna ask them, it's not an eating sort of. We just if if they get to asking that question, asking the questions, I'll ask anyway. Mm. But the questions are stacked against us, and that it wouldn't necessarily diagnose an eating disorder within a black person because of questions around thin ideal, because of the way that they're asking about body image and because of questions around restriction, which likely might not be the most prevalent eating disorder behavior that a black person is engaging in. That's really interesting. I've, I've never really thought about it that way, but like, you know, when you look at the questions, they are all about sort of fatness and do you fear fatness and do you fear weight gain and and that might not be the case. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that they wouldn't be the ones that they would say yes or no to, but mm. yeah. So do you think, I guess it's kind of a, it's the chicken and an egg situation, yeah. isn't it? Because you need the research to know how to tailor it to the black community, but you need the black community to do the research. You need people to be diagnosed, which we can't currently probably diagnose them correctly. Yeah. Or it's happening too late. So people mm. are being, so what we saw, um, there was um, an interesting, it was an article that was, in, that was published in The Guardian, and we just saw this massive rise of ED admissions into hospital in, in, black, in, in black patients. And then the question, of course, was why was there, there's a rise across all groups, but the rise in black patients was huge. It was some ridiculous mm. number, like 216%. Like, it's like what even is wow. that number as a percentage? Ridiculous. And so then it was like what is happening here is it that they're not coming yeah not seeking help is that we're not seeking help or is it that we're seeking help too late I think that's probably like the case and are they seeking help and being missed so I think it's going to be a combination of all these Mm. things but I think the the best way that we change that is to have conversations and just to keep putting that education out there and that is the beauty of social media in that you can get your message across to wider audiences to let let people know that hey like this is we all have this and that we all know that narrative of eating sores do not discriminate, but we really need to talk about what we're saying when we say that. Um, which is why I've been very intentional in a lot of my messaging and talking about the and specifically saying black community as opposed to saying BIPOC or people of color, because I think that when people see the word black, then they're like a black person is likely to more look at it. Not if one mm-hmm. um, identifies with BAME or BIPOC or POC. Like the, again, these are quite Americanized terms that we don't okay. necessarily relate to. But also, I don't think that there's a whole thing within the black community as to who relates to what sort of words, and people don't necessarily relate to that. So there is something about you know people feeling comfortable enough to be quite intentional in the way that they talk about who who struggle with eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. Just talking about social media. Um, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. So if you don't know now, we can just put resources in the in the box at the end. Do you have any, um, I guess, suggestions for maybe people from, you know, that are white that want to kind of, you know, support people in the black community that are struggling with eating disorders? Or if somebody is listening from the black community who just wants to kind of feel like somebody else is singing from the same hymn book as them? Yeah, so I think um, people who I really love their content. So a lot, you know, a lot of people who I follow are doing well in making sure that they're amplifying all voices. But some of my favourite accounts are Black and Embodied, which is Alicia McCullough's um, page. She she's a um, she's a licensed therapist out in the, in the States and she's doing really wonderful work around social justice as well. So we're talking about also making, you know, easy recovery accessible to everybody. Um, the black nutritionist is great. I mean, she is brave. The stuff that she talks about on her, on her Instagram, absolutely love all of it. She talks a lot about the colonization of food and like where we got these ideals around what is quote unquote healthy food and what is quote unquote not healthy food and how like all these sort of diet cultures um standards pretty much vilify all black 
foods or black and indigenous foods actually so she talks about that a lot and she does a really good job of it as well so that's the black nutritionist they're the first two that come to mind um really but who I think if people tend to go they go to my Instagram they'll see who I share stuff from and they're, yeah. they're the people who I rate basically <laughs> but Absolutely. I will yeah like you say I, I think we'll I'll send you some to put into the um into the show notes sure so what you're saying there is follow you have a look have a look I take <laughs> I'm not the most consistent Instagram person, but when I'm there, I, I like to give value. I, I like to um, role model, uh, take in breaks and, and rest for yourself. Absolutely. And that's what I definitely Absolutely. do on my Instagram. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were just talking about, because I have not considered that, but I think that is such an interesting point about the fact that the foods that, you know, in the black community are your part of your diet have been demonized. I think that's so interesting yeah. And I guess, how do you navigate that? It's how, so it's that, it's again, that thing of like, so again, I use myself as, a, as an example, because it's the easiest way to do it about sort of talking about individual client cases. So like me being a black British woman growing up in a household um, of, of a single parent who is also black and British, but my mum's mum, my grandparents are from the Caribbean. So the food that we ate was a mixture We'd have a Sunday roast, but we have it with rice and peas and the roast potatoes and macaroni cheese, Caribbean style, right? So all these different ways. So you're you're growing up on these foods that you're 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 navigating, like loving your British foods, also loving your Caribbean foods. And so if a person is going through an acculturation process. Um, where they're going from one community into another a lot of the times in, in sort of trying to move closer to or to be more accepted by the dominant uh, race they reject a lot of things about themselves and sometimes part of those things they reject is their food is there is there mm-hmm. is there um foods that they would eat normally at home and then and that's perpetuated by diet culture saying whatever diet culture decided to say I'm not even getting into it <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, who knows what they're banging about this this year? It's it's, it's a new thing every year. It's all rehashed. It's a new but, thing um, every day. I just I'm just like what now? No, I can't. I cannot. It's ridiculous. So in it, but in any case, whatever you look at, it's it, none of the foods that you'll see that are quote unquote acceptable by any diet. None of these foods are going to be Caribbean foods. These foods don't tend to be um, African foods. These tend to be foods don't tend to be Indian foods, unless though they make it vegan and suddenly it's cool. So I hear, yeah. plant, I hear planting's a thing now they're loving. I'm just like, wait, no, 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 no. You already did avocado. <laughs> You're not going to mess with planting now. Yeah, I saw um, the other day, and I don't know how, I think, feel like I need to try this before I knock it, but <laughs> vegan fish and chips using plantain as the my thing is like eat what you eat right but like let's not call it fish and chips if it's not fish thank you (laughs) not fish and chips (laughs) let's just say what it is it's fine but you haven't got to like let's this whole pretending that something is what it ain't like this this is yeah mm. (laughs) but um so yeah and this is what diet culture does though right so it will borrow borrow foods that suddenly become proved or it's now superfood and so now we're going to make it all about that and and then drive the prices up so the people who would eat eating it normally probably can't even afford it or have to make real decisions as to whether they're going to buy this food or not it's really messy um but yeah that that food piece is is something that often gets rejected as part of wanting to move into uh, or, or come closer to or become more accepted by the dominant um the dominant race in that in where that person is is living in that particular time um and just yeah and you know how i definitely i've experienced that in the workplace as well like you come into work and when i used to work in corporate like you come into work with your caribbean food never makes a song and dance about it you don't even want to bring it in again because you're like you've made it so awkward for me now oh, what you got there well if you could just get your nostrils away from my lunch for a minute. <laughs> it's like, have you never seen food before? <laughs> Makes yeah. it all very awkward. So you, you tend to then you think, well, that's the last time I'm bringing Caribbean food into the office, you know, and, and things like that. So it can, it can, become, can become very difficult um, to navigate that food piece. And actually, Alicia McCullough, and I did an interview with her, she said something quite um, interesting, which blew my mind. I think she kind of came, I think she said she'd even written about it, it came to the back of something we had just said but she was talking about she wondered she's this isn't this isn't proven anywhere but she did wonder if when um we restrict ourselves or when we uh restrict foods as, as black people 
is that part of the resistance of rejecting the foods that the colonizers has given us? Mm. So I found that really interesting. I was thinking, I hadn't thought about how, because how much that food piece plays a role in rejecting of certain foods and accepting of certain foods. And could that also in some instances be a little sort of generational, a little, it's quite big, a transgenerational <laughs> hand down. Why did I minimize that? It's crazy. A generational hand-me-down from generations and generations before where, you know, people would have resisted food um, as a way as part of their protests and whatnot as well. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point that definitely mm. needs a lot more consideration. And it's, I think it's things like that, that like you said, make kind of the diagnostic process so much more difficult because mm. I don't think that a lot of people would even consider something like that. Um, but equally, you know, in the same way, I think a lot of the time sort of cutting out certain food groups is is part of that diagnostic. And if if, you know, that's not part of your culture or if those foods are a big part of your culture and therefore they're what you eat. And maybe, you know, maybe you are manipulating what you're eating, but not in the same way that would normally be seen. I yeah. think there's there needs to be so many changes and it's kind of. I'm actually I think you know now talking to you I guess I kind of had an idea of things that might be different but you know it's it's quite a big shift I think it's a massive shift and even even myself is that every time I read a new piece of literature I'm like huh haven't thought about that right so it's it there are so many layers to things and like I said I, I think that's why the conversations and people working collaborative collaborate with others is so important because everyone's bringing their different pieces of knowledge to the, the plate as mm. it were noise analogies these food analogies right and so it's it's yeah it's that and it's there are just all these layers there are all these layers um and there's probably a lot of things that I'm not even aware of at the moment which is exciting and scary at the same time yeah it's one of my best friends his favorite thing to talk about is the Dunning-Kruger effect you know when you it's kind of when you you first learn about something and you think you know everything and you're like the bee's knees at that topic but then the more you learn you realize that there's a whole world out there and then you kind of get to a comfortable place where you're like I'm really enjoying learning and I'm just going to keep learning but I'll never know it all um yeah. and I think that's definitely that definitely with this is where I, I mean I'm not saying I thought I knew it all but I think it's just opened my eyes and up to kind of there's just so many factors um Absolutely. and like you said you know it's so exciting to learn about um but yeah I think definitely as a society we really do need to start thinking and I think to be fair um I was speaking to somebody uh, a while back. I think I'm doing a podcast within a few months, but it just keeps getting pushed back and back and back. <laughs> um, but I think she's doing her dissertation on, I don't know if you've caught, heard of the body project, but it's um, it's like they go round into schools um, right. and they kind of say, they take pictures of the thin ideal uh, and they say to the children in the school, you know, how does this make you feel? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but, her project that she's doing is looking at how different cultures will receive that body project because like we've spoken about today the thin ideal if you're going into a black community probably not something that they're going to relate to but kind of having images of other things that might be pressures in society of how their body should look that will then mm. have the same impact yeah and even just think about the whole this whole thin ideal thing now I'm just so conscious that even that's changed recently to mm. this new slim thick situation yeah. that I hear is going on and just that how that even that what is been deemed as the quote-unquote accepted body ideal by by western society even how that shifts it's just it's just ever-changing and I think yeah. about you know me as a person going into my 40s soon um thinking about what was quote-unquote cool as a body image when I was a teenager and how different that is today yeah, I don't know. My mind just kind of went there and like, what even is the thin idea? What, what is the latest thin ideal now? Because yeah. it just keeps on shifting. I think the thing that scares me, and I mean, this is kind of off topic, but we're, it's, it's not because we're talking about body mm -hmm. ideals, but the thin ideal kind of, I don't know whether people recognised it. Yeah, I think that was probably like the noughties. Um, and I don't know whether people recognised it, but when you look back now, you can see that people look unwell because they are so gaunt in their face and putting themselves on very um restrictive diets and stuff mm. like that that were glorified 
I think the shift now has gone to it's like an athletic toned physique that that presents itself as a very healthy build and you know it's 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 correlated with healthy behaviors health I'm I'm putting a lot of quote marks here just for Mm. people listening at home healthy eating (laughs) exercising you know doing all of these behaviors that are deemed healthy but you know everything in too everything in too much of a quantity is not healthy and I think we're seeing more things like orthorexia and excessive exercise correlated with this quote-unquote healthy strong aesthetic that actually is is so so far from healthy because people are so consumed by you know having to get their abs out or looking a certain way with their muscles um I mean that's a whole other conversation, but it's a whole it's a whole other situation. It's a whole other situation that we have going on because this is a lot of the times what people then want. They'll say, okay, so now they don't mind. So what I often experience now is that people don't mind, um, you know, restoring restoring weight if that's what's needed within their recovery, as long as I can do so with lean muscle. Wow. Mm. This is a then we've got ourselves a bit of a pickle here, haven't we? We have to sit yeah. this sit and talk about this now. So yeah, and so how that sort of and, and we see it a lot as well within some recovery stories, how sometimes people have shown that that is how they have recovered, which is I obviously as a, I want to just put it out there, like exercise is, is a part of your self-care, yes. But this idea that this can be a way in a, in and of itself to recover, hmm. I I don't believe so. Let's put it that way. <laughs> generally say I don't believe so yeah and I can sit in this chair right now and say to you that that's how I recovered quote-unquote marks again I Mm. used exercises I started powerlifting and I used that as a means of eating but I moved from having my identity of having an eating disorder to being a powerlifter to then being a gym goer and I think it's still something I'm navigating now in sort of that especially with this growth of that ideal of what you're supposed to look like Mm. it's it's still you're still allowing your body image to reflect your self-worth and that is where the difficulty is and that's what you have to I think I personally think that body image and eat and exercise are the two things in eating disorder recovery we don't discuss enough because we focus so much on weight restoration and food yeah, or, or the fact that, um, and so, and also, thank you so much for saying. I think it's so important that people hear that as well, and that it's it's and how this recovery journey. It's this thing I think what what happens in recovery where it's kind of it can be seen as quite binary. You're recovered or not recovered, mm. and it's, that's not how it is. It's a journey, and people keep working through layers. And so it's just yeah. recognizing ah, this is present for me at the moment. This is the layer that I'm working through now, which is heaps further along than I was say when I was doing this and this and this with mm-hmm. my food. So it's really important that people understand that it's not I am or aren't recovered. It's like I'm just still working through my healing. I'm still understanding yeah. who I am, where I'm placing my self worth. Like, and that happens within, um, inside and outside of eating disorders. But yeah, the body image piece. Um, it's something I often say. Like, it's it gets woven in the early stages of eating recovery, but it is something that becomes a bit more clear and easier to see once the food stuff is stabilized. Yeah. Um, and and then it's kind of like okay, so now what's next how am I feeling about fat phobia um internalize mm-hmm. externalize um what bodies are my what bodies are my um I want to say glorifying but it's not the word I'm looking for um idolizing which one what what, what beliefs do I have about this uh, this person based on their body so this is all stuff that you know at some point people are going to have to have those really difficult internal conversations of themselves around yeah and understanding where does exercise fit into my life because is it that I enjoy powerlifting and that's why I did it? And also there was a part of me that liked it for different reasons. Therefore, yeah. do you know what I mean? So it's all that, it's all untangling that of like how, how much of my powerlifting, running, yoga is part of something that I really love doing for my body and is really important for my self-care mentally, physically, and how much of that is being sort of tied into um, coping mechanisms um, yeah. in, in a way that can be problematic further down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I think just going back to what you said about um, kind of that 
that all or nothing have recovered or not I actually I find it really really interesting because I would say that I am really like I'm very far on my recovery now I think I'm probably in the best place that I've ever been but sometimes I do I'm faced with a situation and I'm like oh wow this feels uncomfortable why is that that's really strange I've not felt like this for so long but I think whereas before I would have just kind of it's like very similar with the exercise like you were saying with the coping mechanism I would have just done it um like even today I had my lunch and I actually felt quite uncomfortable in my body and my immediate thought was I'm gonna go for a walk because that that will get rid of that and I was like why do I want to walk Mm. and I sat with it and then afterwards I thought no, I don't need to. I I just, I kind of want to sit with myself right now and think about why that's come up for me. What what else is going on? Do I feel like there's stuff that I'm not in control of elsewhere? Um, and actually having that internal conversation, like you've just said, helped so much to think, okay, yeah, it's not that I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable in my body, but that's showing up because of the anxiety about other things. I don't need to go out and do a walk. That's, that's you know, walking can be great. Some days I go out for a walk when I've been working for hours and I feel like I can go back and do a few more and that's wonderful. But I think it's recognising when it's for the positive or for the negative and kind of knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a wonderful example as well. And also just showing how you went through your options. Mm. Like I could go for a walk, but hold on, let me just check in with myself and just see what other internal resources I have. Maybe it is a walk today, maybe it's not a walk today, but let me just understand why where that's coming from, what are my other options. And so just to you had that you gave yourself that space to choose what you felt was right for you that moment that's that's a really nice that's I think that's, I'm so glad you you um you you mentioned that because I think it's gonna be really helpful for a lot of people yeah. to hear I think it's it's pausing I mm. think sometimes eating disorders can be so impulsive and you feel like the only way to relieve that anxiety or that stress or whatever is to do that behavior that you've always done and that's the one to go for but I think have being able to have that pause and just like check in with you and not the eating disorder just allows you to kind of question what's going on yeah absolutely yeah anyway I feel like that got really good I really enjoyed that conversation I feel like we covered so much um so I think yeah I learned so much from you which I'm really pleased and thank you so much for joining and being so open and honest um The last question that I ask um, on the podcast each week is what would be your top tip or your best advice if somebody's listening and feels like they might need support for their eating disorder? I think the best advice I would give somebody is to remember that part of struggling with an eating disorder is also believe is, is there's, there's always going to be this voice that tells you that you're not sick enough or that you don't need the help and that it's fine and all tells you that what you're doing is very different to what others are doing. And I really want to let you know that those thoughts in and of themselves are a symptom of the illness and that everybody deserves help. Um, And then the other thing I would say is that no matter what um, you're going through, what thoughts, what feelings, what behaviors you're engaging in, they are more common than you believe, right? And that's not to minimize or, or to take away from what you're experiencing, but it's just to really let that, that part of you that's, that's sort of holding you in that place of shame know that the eating disorder isn't that unique. Yes, your experience are unique, but the eating disorder behaviors and all the thoughts and feelings that come along with it, they're not that unique. And so just um, giving you that so that you may hopefully feel a bit more comfortable to go out and reach for the help that you definitely deserve. Yeah amazing thank you so much it was so lovely to speak to you um i'm gonna let you go now and enjoy your weekend thank you so much take care I found that conversation with Keisha really insightful and I think we really need to start doing more research on how eating disorders present in different cultures and communities I think we're so fixated on well just all the research has been on white individuals and it just means that when people go to the GP so many things are being missed. Next week we'll be joined by Lawrence Smith. Lawrence has his own experience of an eating disorder and also has type 1 diabetes. 
the conversation I had with Lawrence was probably the most real conversation we've had on this podcast and it was really special to me to explore so many different things with so many truths. I must have been like depressed as a kid, times of bouts of sadness and stuff and I was prone to to self-destructive behaviours and I self-harmed and had very low moods and then all this stuff and one of the biggest self-harms was was doing this thing to my body because I think as well I didn't ask for diabetes, a stupid thing to say, but in this example, I didn't ask for diabetes. So I was kind of punishing my body or being like, well, if mm. I've got it, I'm going to use it. So yes, I think I think there was a lot of simmering anger and yeah, at the diabetes or, you know, I can't. It's tricky sometimes to say I'm diabetic and that's in, in itself is an identifier as opposed to I have diabetes yeah. in the same way I'm anorexic. I have anorexic, you know, that's how I spent yeah. many, many years as well. So if you're if you enjoyed if I'm listening today, you won't want to miss the next or episode. Of so be sure to subscribe to be one of the first stuff, to hear it. Please so also like, comment, and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!